Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank everyone in the audience for taking time to be with us today. Our mission, as always, is to provide information to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get faster, better broadband everywhere that it needs to be in America. Now, broadband infrastructure, obviously, is very important to the cause and to getting broadband everywhere. But if you want to achieve the promise of broadband, you you can't just throw network cabling and a few dollars at the process of building infrastructure. You also have to have infrastructure in place, uh, infrastructure consisting of programs, support people, uh, folks with a vision on how they're going to uh, create partnerships and create training and and create a whole apparatus for getting people online to educating and training them on how to maximize the technology and make sure that all of the auxiliary type of um, (coughs) technologies and programs are in place. Today we're going to look at that aspect of uh, the equation, the broadband adoption um, aspect, and if I can keep my voice intact here, I am very happy to welcome to uh, the show today the uh, director of Open Air Boston, which is a um, organization that has actually been around since before the broadband stimulus, but it has been working on the mission of getting more lower income and unserved communities onto the internet. And I have with me uh, Deb Socia, and Deb, thank you for being a guest. Thank you for inviting me. So let's um, jump right in here and start with a background because there is a very interesting background behind uh, Open Air Boston and talk a little bit about your beginnings and the transition from how the organization started to what it has become today. Sure. So in Boston, Mayor Menino is absolutely dedicated to this idea that there should not be a digital divide, that everybody should have access and training uh, in order to use online resources, and in fact, lots of the resources in Boston from City Hall are all online. And so um, initially, Open Air Boston began as an idea to provide free wireless in low-income areas of Boston. As a nonprofit, that's a pretty hard thing to raise funds for, and it's even harder to maintain. So while Open Air was able to open some wireless uh, hotspots around the city, it had a difficult time raising the funds to maintain it, and literally the city has taken over quite a bit of that infrastructure. We still manage some of it. Um, But as we began to think about this, we realized there really are three things you need if you're going to do, if you're going to run a successful broadband adoption. And that includes, of course, the internet access, but it also includes really good training about how technology can really improve your quality of life and it requires decent hardware. And so um, in the city at the time, there was a program called Tech Goes Home that was in its infancy a very different program than what we run now. But um, we took over the program in Open Air Boston. So Open Air Boston is the nonprofit. Tech Goes Home is our sustainable broadband adoption program. Uh, We took it over and began providing training and hardware and assistance to get low-cost Internet access to underserved populations across the city. And we've been doing that now through a stimulus grant for the past two years. 
So, so you've uh, you've, you've transitioned it seems fairly well. And uh, now, what the, the thing that, that drew my attention? Well, besides the fact that I talked to uh, you and some of the other folks involved in the earlier days, sort of the pre the pre stimulus days, mm-hmm. and so I've always been intrigued at what the mission of Open Air Boston has been about. But mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> There are lots of discussions about the sustainability, uh, mm-hmm. you know, how will these things continue to go forward after grant money runs out, well, particularly broadband stimulus money, because we're kind of reaching that point where infrastructure mm-hmm. projects are starting to come online. And there have been a slew of <clears throat> computing center programs and uh, the, the general broadband adoption programs that have been launched, being budgeted and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in the back of people's minds, that whole thing, well, where do we go from here? Because if I'm not mistaken, inherently most broadband adoption programs in and of themselves are not generating – they don't generate revenue. They are a, right. you know, operational thing. However, there are there are examples of, <clears throat> you know, how do you turn that – uh, you know, how do you turn that into some sort of uh, financial sustainability? Um, I don't know attribute. How do you get that involved? So, mm-hmm. how have you uh, tackled that issue? Well, we, we've actually really thought about it on a wide range of levels because we know there's not going to just be one solution that's going to all of a sudden solve all these these uh, fundraising issues that we have. And it's a pretty large amount of funding that we really require to run the program every year. Um, and, and until we figure out how to ensure everybody is online, we are a necessary piece of this puzzle. Mm-hmm. And so we've struggled a bit with it. But, I, you know, we have a bunch of different ways that we're focusing on this, one of them being, so what expertise do we have that we can sell um, we have an absolute dedication to to having our site, which is techgoeshome.org, open and free for everyone to use. And lots of people do. We get 22,000 hits a month, um, not all from our area. So we know that it's it's being used more broadly than just the folks that we're training. Um, but we so we want there to be this open and free opportunity. But what is it that we have that we can sell? And one of the things we are thinking about is this whole uh, movement in the country about bring your own device to school, mm-hmm. and how again that just exacerbates the existing divide between those who have technology and those who don't. And so we're saying to more affluent communities, tech goes home can be your solution to bring your own device. We'll come in and do all the training, provide the technology, help people sign up for the Internet for a cost to your district. Mm -hmm. So a more affluent district could actually sponsor some of the work that we do by providing that resource. So uh, we're looking at that as an opportunity. We haven't yet uh, really pulled that off well. So it's something that we're working on, but we're not quite there yet. Um, there are a bunch of other ways that we're talking about this. Uh, you mentioned the sustainable broadband adoption in in the context of the public computing centers, which also receive stimulus funds, and they are also um, coming off of their cycles uh, of funding from the government. And so working together in partnership with the public computing centers and writing joint grants and looking at joint funding opportunities is another pathway that we've gone down, working with the libraries and the housing association, sorry, housing authority in Boston, um, and 
all of the other resources that were placed into the community to support um, open computer hours for folks to use the computers. And we actually run our programs in the libraries and the computing centers all over the city. So working with them in partnership, finding partners <clears throat> that you can work with is also helpful. Um, the other thing that we, we are working on, which I, I um, listened to your piece from from Neighborly. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, the, right, right, right. Right, uh, a crowdfunding source. Mm -hmm. We actually are have a, a crowdfunding opportunity on CitizenVestor, and that particular crowdfunding opportunity is to support our students who are uh, blind or visually impaired because they're fairly expensive for us to run a class for because we need to buy an iPad and a Bluetooth keyboard and other um, software. So um, we, we are using that as well. Uh, again, it's a little bit of work, and it's kind of new, so we haven't gotten that entirely together. But if folks want to donate, we're there on Citizen Investor. Right. Um, the, the other thing we're looking at, of course, are direct donations. Uh, mm -hmm. We are a cause on Level Up. I don't know if you've ever used Level Up on your phone, but a lot of uh, restaurants and other um, stores in Boston, actually, you can go in and pay for something by having your holding your phone up to a sensor. Oh, right, right, right. I know what you're Right, about. and that's Level Up, and you can choose to donate any of your, you know, instead of getting a coupon for a certain amount off, they give the money to Tech Goes Home. And so mm -hmm. we're a cause on, on Level Up. Mm -hmm. Um we also, you know, just looking at what are those local events that might support and sponsor us. So we are now uh, the group that receives any funding that is the, uh, the result of Hub on Wheels, which is an annual bike ride through the city. Uh, that provides us with a certain amount. So you can see we're really looking at, you know, a wide range. I, I guess when you are trying to uh, invest your money, you diversify. And I think for us, trying to raise money, we're trying to diversify. Mm -hmm. Where are, how, what are the funding sources? Mm -hmm. How receptive do folks seem to be about uh, these kinds of programs? You know, because we're in sort of this, this, you know, tough economic time, and mm -hmm. it's hard for nonprofits across the board to get. Uh, you know, visibility and and people, you know, opening up their wallets, as it were. Uh, how's how has it been so far for you? At least Not in terms so of people's attitudes. Not so easy. Um, I've always been able to raise funds. You know, I previously was a principal, and I've always been able to raise funds more easily than I have in the last year or so. It just seems as though um, folks are not giving money quite so generously. Um, and it's understandable the economic downturn hit everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and the other issue we run into, which is kind of interesting and, and unforeseen on my part, is that many of the big foundations that we've gone to for funding are confused about what it means to provide uh, sustainable broadband adoption support. And I think they just assume it's giving somebody a computer. And we're having to work very hard at help people, helping people to see it's more than just the number of people that end up with technology. It's what they do with it and how it changes their lives and how that is good for society as a whole and that it also has an economic impact in helping people find work and improve their job skills. So trying to help people see the broader sense of the work that we do uh, has been a bit of a challenge. Mm -hmm. how, how have you tackled the challenge so far? 
And then what steps have you taken? One of the things we're really good at at Tech Goes Home is collecting data. And I think that you need both anecdotal data about, you know, people telling their stories because the story is so important. But also you have to have empirical data that you can say, you know, I know, for example, that over 90% of our people a year after our program are signed up for the Internet. That's a huge number when you, when you understand that the average income is under $25,000 and it's very expensive to live in Boston. So you can imagine if your household income is $25,000, how hard it is to pay for Internet access. Mm-hmm. So to be at that level, that's, you know, that's really incredible data. Um, mm-hmm. We also know that the people who are in our program are the folks we need to support. They are um, the very low income, the disabled, the seniors, school families um, with very low income. Really, we're helping the folks in the city who are not connected become connected. So, and that I have the details of that. We know who the folks are we serve. Um, We know the outcomes because we do follow-up data. So we do a pre-survey, a post-survey, a six-month survey, a one-year survey, and 18 months out. And that gives us an incredible amount of information that we can use to help an organization take a look at what we're doing. And the, the other thing is, you know, the anecdotal data is fabulous, and I think videos tell the story better than anything else. So we do also provide folks with videos of some of our participants. Hmm. And uh, now, so what, some, what are some of your, um, you know, really ex- effective programs in terms of generating results? So it's interesting. We run two really unique programs. Um, they both use some of the same information in terms of curriculum, but they are different. The school-based program, which is what really got me engaged in this because I was a school principal in Boston. Um, in the school-based program, we bring a parent and a child into the school where the child is a student and the teacher of that child is the tech goes home trainer. So we do a train the trainer model. Mm-hmm. The trainer is the child's teacher, brings the parent and child in together with other parents and children from their class or school. Usually these are the folks who do not tend to go to school, go to the school events. Um, especially our, for our second language learners, that number is close to 80% had mm-hmm. never been to their child's school before. Wow. Um, yeah, so we're, we know we're getting the right people in school, and we also know there's you know incredible data about when parents are involved, kids' achievement goes up, right? Students are more successful in school. So that program is incredibly powerful. Um, children so bringing and parents, the parents and teachers together. I mean, I'm mean, exactly. sorry, bringing them- Parents, teachers, and kids together in sort of a little right. triangle yeah. of sorts. Exactly. And and we find that a year later, the parents are still connected not only to the teacher, but interestingly enough, to the other participants in the class. Mm-hmm. So it's like creating a community and a collaboration that didn't exist prior. And And because we run the program in nine languages, including American Sign Language, um, we are definitely getting uh, the folks – who typically would not engage in the school mm-hmm. for all the reasons you might imagine. So right, right. That's been really powerful. And the other group that we work with quite a lot in the schools are students with disabilities. So from autism to blind, visually impaired, to deaf, uh, to cognitively delayed or 
um, physically disabled. So that's the school-based program. On the community side, we run programs um, in libraries and in the housing authority. And what we find is that a lot of the folks who come to that, they're individuals. It doesn't have to be a parent-child pair. Okay. But a lot of the folks there are the lowest income of the lowest income. A lot of those folks are. Either that or they are low income and they're seniors or low income and unemployed or disabled. And so that's a really powerful program in the community. Um, and we find that the folks in the community are less likely to have internet access at the beginning of the course than those in the school. I think parents with children in school have a sense that it's important for them to have internet um, because their children share that information with them. If you're a senior on a limited budget, it's hard to see why that's important. Mm -hmm. So uh, we work very hard on that community-based side as well. Mm -hmm. So now, how how do you I don't know how do you address the seemingly constant negative attitude about from some quarters about uh, adoption programs that are geared toward low-income people? Because I mean, if I whenever I read a story about a program such as yours, there's always the people in the comments section, you know, why are we spending these tax dollars for people who are just going to frivolously away or sit around at their home all day and just, you know, surf the web? And all these 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 images of, uh, you know, unproductive, unresponsive folks. I mean, mm -hmm. you must deal with some of that kind of stuff yourself. We sure, we, we certainly do. And, and interestingly enough, it's not always the people you expect will feel that way. Really? Um, we often find, for example, some of the some of the folks that we talk to uh, in the philanthropic area have that same belief, um, and I think it's partly because folks don't stop and think about how they use technology in their lives. Uh, it wouldn't occur to me to write a check, for example, and yet people who are very low income are still taking their uh, checks to check cashing stores and losing thirty percent of their income. Mm -hmm. And we're helping them learn to use online banking. And if you think about the number of jobs, even if you want to apply for a job at CVS, for example, or uh, Walmart, you're not going to be able to apply if you can't apply online. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, whatever level of income you are, you can't really exist easily or, or get, become more financially independent without technology in your life. So we really work hard to teach folks how do you use this technology to improve your quality of life? How do you use it to save money? For example, if you have family in the Dominican Republic and you're paying 37 cents a minute on a calling card when you could be spending three minutes, three cents a minute using Google Phone, right? <laughs> so mm -hmm. we try to help folks look at ways that it's actually a productive use of your time and a way to manage your income. Um, and when we talk to folks about that, I think people begin to realize, uh, especially when they look at our site, and we have you know, five areas, live, learn, earn, work, play, and how do you improve your quality of life in those five areas using the vetted set of tools and the tutorials that we provide. Uh, I think people get that that makes sense when they realize how much they're actually personally using technology to be successful. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier creating videos. I assume these are like videos of your success stories, right? Yes. How 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 effective are those? Because I um 
I know that I've seen, you know, one or two here and there, and mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I will assume that they work, but, you know, you're in the trenches. How, how do those things go over? That's interesting. You know, I, I'll, I'll sit on a panel discussion, and typically I don't explain the program. Rather, I show the videos, you know, a, a video. And usually, you know, under five minutes is a good deal. You don't want to show a really long video. But showing people actually say, this really mattered to me. This made a difference in my life. I'm more successful because of this. I got a job because of this. Okay. Um, I think it's more powerful coming from the folks it has impacted than it is coming from me repeating their stories. And after, you know, uh, being on a panel conversation, I often have folks come up and say, that really touched me. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, you, we can talk all we want, but it doesn't have the same impact as having somebody who was really struggling find a way out, either economically, socially, um, find connections and change their lives. Uh, that story plays so much better than my replaying it. Mm-hmm. So it's basically taking those stories of how people broke the cycle, which generally is what everyone when you get those critics and stuff they're they're really talking about the cycle they you know it's like they're always going to be poor, they're always going to be behind they're never going to use this yada yada yada, but what you want to really do is to get to the heart of the issue of um here's how they break that cycle, yes, they are in a bad space, yes, it seems like it's a hard road for them to come you know to come out of but but here are these people that are actually doing it. Right. And, you know, we don't imagine we're going to solve all the problems of the family uh, through this technology and the tutorials, but we hope that we ease some of the struggles. Mm-hmm. We hope that we make it easier for them to communicate and collaborate. We hope that it's easier for them to stay connected to their family. We hope that they become more connected to the, the resources in the community and that they begin to seek out opportunities through technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know we can't solve all the problems. However, we can make a difference and we can matter. And, but that takes some effort and it takes uh, some money. I mean, there's, this isn't going to happen without us raising the funds to make it happen. Mm-hmm. So... Um... What are the biggest challenges of creating a successful program to begin with? Because you can't really talk about success stories until so you, so you have created success. How do you move the ball forward? I mean, I know that the people came to uh, the, 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 the federal government when the stimuluses were being awarded. They came in with programs and stuff. And I'm sure on paper, you know, a lot of this stuff looks good, right, because people thought it through. But in the trenches, <laughs> when you mm-hmm. no longer have like the theoretical and all the rest of it, but now you have money, now you have a building if you're lucky, or you have some resources, you now have to take these folks and move them forward. Mm-hmm. How, what, are, what are the ingredients of a successful program? I think one of the first things is trust and building your brand, right? So within the community we're talking about here, we're talking about folks who – may not feel really connected. And so how do we get the folks who are not connected to participate in a program that we believe can help them um, when maybe they don't have an experience that leads them to believe that this will make a difference? So um, luckily, we had worked very hard to build the brand of Tech Home, and it had a very successful name in the community. So we worked... um, 
with all of the different partners that we uh, participate with in Boston. I will say if there's one huge advantage here, I'll say two. One is that the mayor is so supportive, and second is that the partnerships in Boston are really solid and people work together really well as a team. Uh, and so that was helpful to us as well. So between building our brands to make it positive in the community, because the first time we told folks, look, we're going to give you for a $50 copay, you'll get a new netbook computer, you'll come to 15 hours of training, and we'll help you apply for internet access, low-cost internet access. There were folks who said that is too good to be true. And it took that first set of folks coming through the program and being very impressed by it to talk about it in the community and talk it up. And before you know it, we have wait lists in some place of six to eight months. Wow. So it, it's about building that brand. So folks have to want to participate and have to value what you have to offer and see it as a potential for improving their quality of life. You can't. It's not enough for us to say it. There had to be word of mouth, and there was. And it spread through the city like wildfire wow. to the point where we are now in 70 schools and 60 community sites, so 130 places around the city run the program. Mm -hmm. And in some of those places, we, we've got these huge waiting lists. So That's pretty, uh, that's pretty good. Yep, and it's, I think it's about building the brand. We talk to folks quite a bit across the country who are still finding their way around the brand. How do you build your, how do you get to the folks you really want to support and how are you sure you're getting the people into the program who most need it? Mm -hmm. and, and and really part of, big part of it is is building that trust and part of it is networking and partnering with other trusted agencies within the community. And that for us was uh, a real bonus and made that beginning part of getting people on board that we wanted to participate, that was actually pretty simple for us. Mm -hmm. um, the logistics are tricky, and so um, I work with a gentleman, Dan. Uh, Dan Noyes does all of our background stuff, figures out how to um, train all the trainers and make sure that all the attendance is done and we're collecting all our data and so on and so forth. Um, that part is another piece that a lot of people struggled with. Um, and some folks didn't have in place an idea of how they were going to collect data. But I was a math teacher and then a principal for years, so collecting data was second nature. So <laughs> we had an advantage in that department. Excellent. Um, so those are both really high-priority beginning uh, sort of focuses that, that folks need to really think about in preparation. Mm -hmm. Now, um how is it that that I don't know that word of mouth spreads? You know, I think that for folks looking on the outside in, go well. If you have a you know low income community, they don't have a natural um, I don't know you know the media outlet and and all those sort of traditional things. I think the people in you know middle class or upper income neighborhoods are used to, or just the mass media in general. How 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 do folks hear about this? How does that word of mouth pass along? There are a few things that happen. Uh, the first one that's a huge advantage to us is that in the school-based program, the teachers explain to the students what the program is, and the students go home and say, hey, mom, or hey, dad, or hey, grandma, we got to do this. Mm -hmm. And so we have a natural sort of push for that to occur. Once families come, they love it. And 
And interestingly enough, at the end of the class, what they love most about the class has nothing to do with technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about building that, those relationships and that collaboration and, and getting a sense that they're not so isolated. Right, okay. Um, in in the community-based programs, um, we actually even have longer waiting lists there. I think folks have some affinity groups, whether they're seniors or they're neighbors or they're in the, you know, the same housing authority site um, that they share the information with. And the other thing that's happened is social workers and community agencies all over the city are recommending us. Mm-hmm. So uh, folks are calling us, sort of just blind calling us and saying, I really want to do this. How do I do it? Right. Um, so, you know, and, no. and there's a sense of trust because we're in these community organizations they already have a sense of trust with. Mm-hmm. Now, what kind of advice would you give for folks for the internal management? In other words, what kind of structure, you know, you talk about doing surveys, you talk about having, you know, a handle on who's doing what and so forth, mm-hmm. but what kind of mechanism keeps all that information together? Because if I'm not mistaken, you don't have really a huge staff working for you. There's a, there's a fairly small group of of people, actually, that comprise yeah. Open Air Boston. So we have served over 7,100 people in the last two years, and until this fall, it was Dan Noyes and myself running the program across the entire city. Um, every penny we can put on program, we do. Uh, but this fall, we also took on an AmeriCorps member, and we're thrilled to have her. Um, she's actually helping us create a new version of Tech Goes Home for small businesses. Um, But in terms of how are we collecting and storing data, we initially started by using all free Google apps. Mm -hmm. So Google Forums, Google Spreadsheets, everything is all done online. The only piece of paper we collect is the initial parent or participant application because we are presuming they don't have Internet access and technology at that point. Everything else is done online. Um, our follow-ups, by the way, are done by phone because we don't want to skew our information by right. only doing a survey. But mm-hmm. this, we've actually gotten to a point where uh, we're now doing some pilots outside of Boston, and it's getting difficult to manage all our data because it's wow. gotten so big. Uh-huh. And so we worked with a nonprofit group which uh, connected us with some volunteers who are helping us build uh, a database that will be more successful in terms of keeping track of our data. It won't require so much of uh, Dan's time to connect all the dots all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so it's it will be a lot easier, I would say, in the, within the next six months. So we're looking forward to that time. However, for a small group, really Google Docs and Google Apps are just a fabulous free tool. Mm-hmm. Now, do you use um, PEG uh, access channels as part of the uh, outreach effort? We do not. Okay. Um, and maybe for the audience, probably should explain what that is, because I realize maybe not everybody knows what a, what a PG, PEG is. Hello? Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just saying, I think maybe, because um, it's, it's oh, what is it? It's public education... Um, you know, now I've spaced. I can't remember what the PEG stands for. Let's retract that one for a second. Um, what is what are you talking about? Yeah, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying. What 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 do you see 
next in terms of programs, and then what do you see next in terms of, uh, you know, efforts to try to, um, you know, continue to grow the program but also sustain the program? Well, one of the things we're thinking about is um, what do we do well and what are other needs that we can meet through this process we have developed to protect this home that has been so successful? How do we take advantage of this positive brand that we already have? And so um, one of the things we are working on, and we've brought this new AmeriCorps volunteer on to assist with, is develop the development of a small business tech goes home model. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, we're thinking about the really tiny uh, small businesses, many minority or, or um, immigrant-owned, um, that have not really used the power of technology to um, help them grow their business and or better manage their assets and their um, internal processes. So how can we help folks to do that? Because we're really, we have that brand, so there's a sense of trust, and we're really good at getting the kind of training people need to the people who need it. Mm-hmm. And so we're working on that. And in part, we're, we're doing this because we know that it, the uh, economic needs of that group are pretty significant, also because the mayor is really interested in developing and growing new businesses and entrepreneurs, and also because uh, we hope that it will allow us to seek other funding sources to help run the program continually. Mm-hmm. So it, that is one of the two big changes that we're adding, and the other one is actually education-based, uh, not surprisingly having to do with STEM, science, technology, engineering and mathematics, and we're, we're working on the development of a mobile, community-based um, parent and child, sort of our school-based model or guardian and child um, STEM game that can be played um, to help people understand that STEM fields, non-traditional uh, participants in STEM uh, employment opportunities, we're trying to help folks really begin to see, you know, I could be a um, mathematician or I could be an engineer, I could be a scientist, I could be a technologist. I think this is interesting and I could do it. Helping folks to understand that that is a possibility for them means that we can't just talk to the child, we need to talk to the parent too. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to really work on an interesting model of Tech Goes Home that's really about engaging people in STEM. Mm Now, we've talked about or mentioned a couple times the the involvement of the mayor. And mm-hmm. where, or not where, but how how do you go about building the um, the political support that helps make these, these projects more effective? I think part of it is in your efforts at branding and your efforts at, um, for example, you know, getting the local newspapers involved. Um, we we do a yearly graduation where hundreds and hundreds of people come and we invite politicians and um, publicly uh, making sure people understand the commitment of the politicians publicly whenever you have that opportunity. Um, but we, we do have a benefit in Boston in that the mayor is so dedicated to our cause that it's actually easy for mm-hmm. us. Uh, we've had great support from other folks to the city council. Our state reps and our state senators have been very helpful to us as well. 
um, because they get that we're making a difference for the families that live in the communities that they serve. Mm-hmm. So you've got to, in some respects, it's the same as everything else. You've got to show success stories and mm-hmm. and uh, expand the brand and build the right. trust and so forth. So the and you have to be present. So you know, I go to lots and lots and lots of community-based events where politicians may be present. I make sure to tell them what we're doing because that publicity is incredibly helpful when you go back and say we need support now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just really, um, you know. As much as you're building your brand, you're building relationships. Mm-hmm. Interesting, right? Well, no, that's basic, I guess, fundamental, uh, if you will, um, uh, uh, 101. You know, as far as as building the effectiveness of a nonprofit organization. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing that you've talked about are partnerships. What mm-hmm. are typical types of partnerships? And how do you go about uh, building ones that are, you know, beneficial and are more positive than become a time sink? Right. You know, I, I, in in my mind, a partnership has to be mutually supportive. So if if it only helps one of the two partners, it's not a good partnership and it won't sustain. So when people come to us to propose a partnership or we go to someone else to propose a partnership, we make sure that we both have advantages. We both win, right? So when we work with the school department, we're getting folks to come to the school and stay connected to the school that had never been connected before. And so we're providing a resource to the school and to Mm -hmm. the school department, and in turn, they support us. So uh, providing us with opportunities to use space and so on and so forth, um, it's the sort of circumstance where everybody wins, and that's the only kind of partnership that really works. Mm -hmm. So we work with, for example, the Boston Housing Authority. Uh, Their space is all over the city. Their community, public computing centers within the public housing um, those centers were were staffed by, in some cases, people who lived within the housing authority. Mm-hmm. They weren't all trained, and so we provided them with training, and that training, therefore, increased the value of what occurred in those public computing centers, but yet it ran our program. So everybody wins once again. Um, right. And those are some of our most popular classes. So it's been, uh, I mean, I think any time you look for a partnership, it has to be mutually beneficial. I think one of the difficulties for a lot of nonprofits when they're stepping out and really thinking about how to begin a partnership is that often they don't, par- they don't step forward to par- partner with another nonprofit thinking that they might be comp- competing for the same dollars. When, in fact, if you join together, uh, not only are you not competing, but you have a better shot at those dollars. Mm-hmm. I think many foundations are happier to see collaborations as opposed to individuals. Mm-hmm. So it's a, so it's a partnership both for working and also should be looked at as a partnership for fundraising. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. exactly. Um, now, in, in the beginning, uh, I think I've, I've missed one of the key parts of the the beginning phase, which is, the planning there 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 mm-hmm. needs to be some sort of planning because you seem to be juggling a lot of activity with again a sm- you know just a couple of people mm-hmm. uh I have to believe that good planning is the key to that, and I always like to try to get you know advice from the guests here on the show. How do you do effective planning in this realm and this you know setting up of effective broadband adoption programs 
I, I think a part of it is really asking the folks you're going to support to give you as much information and feedback up front as you can. So, uh, you know, we're working on the small business tech goes home. We're doing focus groups. We're talking to folks about what is what are your needs? Would this be helpful to you? Um, but it's also about not being afraid to sort of step out on a ledge a little bit and try something mm-hmm. and say, I'm going to try this and I'm going to collect data. And if it works fabulous, we'll keep it in. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Mm-hmm. You know, not, there's no chance that 100% of what we're going to try the first time is going to be successful. So you, you do have to be a little bit of a risk taker, I think, mm-hmm. um, in order to ensure that what you're, what you're doing is actually as uh, supportive of the community as you could possibly be. And, and knowing that uh, we want to be always cutting edge because we don't want to be providing people with yesterday's technology we're also always looking forward. What's next? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we know what's next. Right now we're giving netbook computers, but they're going to disappear. And so we now have a uh, tech goes home for tablets so and phones. So we can begin to provide a tech goes home program that meets the needs of this generation as the technology changes. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier, I, I, uh, I was relaying a question that had come in the chat room here from one of the audience, and I had a network glitch and lost everybody. But I was, but, but the question had been about uh, PEG, which is Public Educational and Government Access Channels uh-huh. on the mm-hmm. local cable systems. Do you guys right. take advantage of that? Those not them, currently. Okay. So not currently. We do have a plan with the local um, cable station to provide our training, actually training modules. Uh, on their uh, public access TV, uh, the public access channel, but we haven't been taking advantage of it up to this point and really haven't taken advantage of the great potential that it could bring to really providing the information that we share with families in the program in a more general and a broad, more broad way. Mm-hmm. I mean, we lose something in that translation if that's all you participate in because you lose out on the collaboration piece of it. Um, but it is certainly a way for us to have a much bigger impact. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it, so it, it, it can be part of the system and 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 so forth. But I'm sure it's like mm-hmm. as one other you know one more thing. It also requires a certain amount of planning and juggling mm-hmm. just to mm-hmm. be able to even to find the time for it. Right, and well, you know, for us, the we our tutorials are, are already completed, so it'll mostly just mean um, uh, Dan or myself introducing that particular tutorial and then they play the tutorial. So uh, because our tutorials are all um, videos, webcasts of right. different sites, and uh, so that piece of it is already done. Uh, mm-hmm. We do, you know, in the summertime we tend to decrease because we do, we're not running programs in school, so we have a little bit more time to really prepare for the year then. Mm-hmm. And so we've done a lot of work over the summer in preparation for this fall. Mm-hmm. Well, let me. I want to take the uh, discussion back to the area of, um, you know, of, of financial sustainability, and I want to mm-hmm. describe briefly a couple of projects that has come to my attention that, that I've talked about on the show or talked about in other venues. Um, one of those is in Riverside, California, where they have a fairly aggressive program of recycling electronic gear. 
right? Mm-hmm. And they partner with a company that uh, that comes by and picks this stuff up, and then you know they they make revenue from that. And mm-hmm. they've got citywide because it is a citywide it is a city run project. They've got citywide awareness of it. So basically, everybody that has you know old cell phones, old whatever mm-hmm. whatever hanging around, they know to bring them to a certain location because the revenue from that particular operation of basically getting all of these recyclables in, and there's some phenomenal tonnage of, of, of stuff that gets done, right? But it's, mm-hmm. it's mainly, you know, they got, a, they got a government building that wasn't being used or an old warehouse building, I forget which one of the, t- one of the two. Um, mm-hmm. So they had the location. They've got four staff, uh, and several of those are youth staff, right, people who mm-hmm. were in some program they've taken out that were like troubled youth. And, and put right. them to work and teaching them job skills and how to run a business, basically. Mm-hmm. And then um, everybody's, you know, directed to bring their 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 old electronic stuff to one uh, one location. And the, and the recycler comes in and they not only pick up and haul away the the stuff and then um, oh, what is it? Uh, they writes the organization a check, but they mm-hmm. also uh, refurbish or teach the kids how to refurbish computers. So it's like a two-way cycle of stuff, right? So that's one particular program. Uh, Another one is in, uh, where are they, Long Beach, where the YMCA has teamed up with some folks to to create a program where the kids learn digital media skills. You know, they learn how to make videos and learn how to do, uh, you know, TV or video broadcasting and audio Mm -hmm. broadcasting and a whole range of stuff. But they have gotten it so sophisticated over the last couple of years that they then turn around and offer services, basically digital media services, to other nonprofits in other parts of the U.S. So mm-hmm. they take their skills and you know, and they they are at a certain level where they can now sell those, and they make a fairly decent amount of money as a business by basically taking those kids, training those kids. And you know, giving them the right adult supervision to then turn around and say, "We now have a service that we can market." Um, right. What is your take on those sort of call it categories? Like one's a recycling business, the other one is teach kids a skill that they can actually market business. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of programs like that. Uh, the one on recycling, you know, initially Tech Goes Home actually used recycle refurbished computers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the difficulty we had was that they broke down so often. Ah. And sometimes by the time we got them to folks, they were really past their useful life. Mm-hmm. And that was frustrating to families because they couldn't go to the sites or use the resources that we were actually training them to use. Um, and we ended up spending a whole ton of our time managing the recycling. Mm-hmm. I would say that if we had the funding to do a startup like that, that would be a little bit easier. If you, you sort of have to have that money up front to get it started. Um, I think there are the, – the trick in Boston anyway is that there are other organizations already doing that work. They're not engaged in training, but they're engaged in um, teaching youth to rehab computers, and then they're turning around and giving them to organizations to share with low-income families. Uh, and some of them are quite successful at that. Some of them struggle like we did with all of the issues around, you know, my plug is frayed. Um, you know, my hard drive died two days after I got it home. I'm, I'm not able to, to participate in this particular activity because the, the computer is too old to do so. Um, and we found that, the, you know, the netbook computers had certain advantages. One is 
uh, I don't have to deal with those issues. They're under warranty, and we have a local organization that actually supports them. So you don't have to send them away in a box somewhere and wait for it to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, second, a lot of our families don't have Internet access immediately. It takes them a little while to figure out how to manage it, and they can take that netbook computer to fast food places, to libraries, to lots of other places and get online, which you can't do with a refurbished desktop. And the third one was that a lot of our families live, as many city dwellers do, in very small apartments. And the netbook doesn't take up as much real estate in that apartment. That's why we decided to do what we do. Um, But I have great faith that the program for recycling can have incredible benefits for an organization. It just didn't fit what we were doing. Right. Um, And I've seen some do so and do so well. Uh, I do wish that we would come up with a system by which we had something to sell, like the media skills that you were suggesting. And I hope that at some point we're able to do that because I think in order to be fully sustainable, you just really need something that you can offer as a service that brings back income. Mm-hmm. Um, there are organizations in Boston that do that. One nonprofit I know of um, actually trains kids to be um, trainers. So it's called uh, Urban urban weightlifting, and they train young kids who are in trouble exactly how to be a trainer, um, and the kids earn money while they're learning, and the organizations earn money. I mean, these are smart decisions for a nonprofit whenever you can find a way to bring back revenue. Um, And, you know, our our BYOD piece is our effort so far at doing that, and hopefully we will eventually come to a place where that brings in enough income to help us be sustainable. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there any kind of, um, I don't know, program or avenue through which organizations such as yours can learn some of these fundamental skills of, uh, you know, creating a business or creating a skill set that people or kids or whomever can turn into a business? And um, and, and and the point or the perspective I'm coming at this from is that I see all of these different programs, all these various different adoption programs and organizations mm-hmm. that are driving them. And I've had the folks from Philly and their program on mm-hmm. the on the show. And you know, and you're here today. And and what I'm starting to to sense is that there are lots of folks doing good things, but there's not necessarily a system or a channel or or some way by which people could learn or network with others who are doing adoption programs so that, like, for example, someone could take the Long Beach story and create a sort of a template to then pass out to, you know, all of the nonprofits that are involved in adoption programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that a correct assessment, number one? And, and if that is indeed the case, you know, do you think it would make a difference to have someone try to tackle that task, monumental though it may be? I think it would be fabulous to have somebody tackle that task. I think it's a huge task. And I think the difficulty is every one of the nonprofits that's providing sustainable broadband adoption support has a bit of a different twist on it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that because each part of the country is a little different and each organization's oh, no capacity right. is different. Uh, but I think that we could all learn something from each other that we could take home. I, I've spoken to folks all over the country, too. Interestingly enough, we keep in touch. The SBA folks talk to each other fairly often about programs that we're running and supports that we can provide to one another. 
Um, but it's not, and the NTIA has been fabulous about sort of taking best practices, and we have webinars and seminars and opportunities to get face to face and really share those tools. That's helpful, but it doesn't necessarily solve all the problems. I think part of it is that as nonprofit folks, we're not used to having to think like business people that way. <laughs> I'm supporting a group of folks who have no money. <laughs> this is not a money-making proposition, and we know that. Right. So um, we are learning as we go about how do we create this diverse, diversified income so that we can sustain. And one of those things is learning a new set of skills. And, uh, you know, at least in this area, there are lots of colleges, and we've communicated with several, several of them that have MBA programs, and we're saying, you know, how can you support us? in creating a good business plan that can help us become more sustainable. Mm -hmm. I think colleges are a good resource, and I think the other SBAs and other uh, programs that are running out there, nonprofits that are creating uh, sustainable income, are all helpful mm -hmm. in terms of our learning. Is the, the Kaplan organization big in, in Boston? Or have you Which heard of organization? That? Kaplan. Kaplan? Kaplan? Yeah. They, they have, uh, what's the best way to describe them, a national chain, if you will, of, like, skills development. I mean, they basically they set up the buildings. They have people go to do certain classes to learn certain very specific skills. They're not mm -hmm. a college, but they are educational in that they, you know, will teach basic accounting or they'll teach basic business management. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of, the, not to be taken derogatorily, but sort of like a McDonald's approach. If you go to a Kaplan right. in, say, downtown Berkeley, uh, you would have the same, call it, options of skill sets that you can learn there that they would also be available in, say, Chicago if they had a Kaplan mm -hmm. there. But I don't right. know really how far spread they are. I just know that at the beginning of the stimulus program, they and I had talked about creating um, if they have all these facilities, right, all these different um, mm -hmm. you know, facilities across the U.S., why not somehow create, you know, a training program or a set of training programs around broadband because they already had the infrastructure in place. They already, you know, knew how right. to teach the stuff. And even though people are different and they have different needs, there's a certain sort of core mm -hmm. foundation. And we explored that for a while and we didn't go anywhere with that. But I didn't know if Kaplan is number one in Boston has a presence there, or if something like that is a viable option, you know, is that something that you could partner with or could see partnering with, you know, from your perspective? Well, I've heard of them. I don't know their the depth of their presence in this area, so I can't really speak okay. to that piece. But I think that the idea of having a clearinghouse for that information and a set curricula that can be supportive is a, a good one. And I know, again, some of the colleges around here see the same need. And so I know Northeastern, for example, now has a series of classes that nonprofit administrators can attend so that they can learn some of these skills. Mm -hmm. The trick is, you know, how do you find the time and where do you find the funding? Yeah. You and, mean the funding to know, be able to afford the class? Yes. Okay. And, and quite honestly, most uh, funders aren't interested in funding that. There are some that are, and I'm very thankful for that, but not all of them are. Um, and and the same goes for research, by the way. You know, to get really good research done, uh, it costs money, and a lot of funders aren't so interested in funding that either. I now, think what, the other yeah. 
Go ahead. I was say, what's, what's the ra- what is their rationale for not getting involved in those kinds of activities? I'm not really certain. I think, you know, different organizations feel differently about it. Um, for example, if you have a National Sci- Science Foundation grant, it always comes with a research component, and that's really powerful. You can really do some great, add some value to the to the base of knowledge around your content area. Um, but most of them do not. And that, quite frankly, includes the BTOP grants, right? The the stimulus grants did not include money for us to pay an outside researcher. Right. Or at least we didn't include that in ours. Um, and so that's, you know, the research that we're doing is all done internally. Mm-hmm. Well... That seems to be a bit of a challenge. I'm wondering, uh, we're we're running down to about maybe three minutes or so to go here. Mm -hmm. At the national level, right, NTIA, uh, RUS, and to to a certain extent, I know NTIA has taken the brunt of the, not the brunt, but the bulk of the training adoption issues. Mm -hmm. But from a government perspective, what might they be able, not be able to do, what would you like them to be able to do if, you know, in your wildest dreams you say, well, you know, okay, in the next year it would be nice if we had federal assistance to do X or Y, right. what would X or Y be? Well, you know, obviously uh, my opinion is that we're supporting folks who really need the resources and that we can potentially create life-changing opportunities for folks. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, it's worth the investment and they should continue to invest. That would be my dream. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's unlikely, but... But I think the next piece that would be interesting to me is um, what if we could then otherwise uh, do some sup- provide some support around research and um, maybe some skill development opportunities that would help folks to be more successful. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done a really good job of this so far, but you know it's not so simple for them either. They're pretty um, low level of staff, uh, I said that wrong. They have, they have very few staff as well. And right. so we're all trying to do the best we can with not a lot of resources, and they've done a fabulous job. Right. Uh, and we feel very well supported. Um, but it would be neat if we had some sort of wrap-up opportunity where all this research sort of came together and was looked at from the sort of national level with best practices being um, laid out for those who come next or for those of us who are here. Sounds like a Bill Gates Foundation project. It really does to me too. <laughs> you know that someone can come in with you know the necessary capital and vision, but also a certain amount of brand you know strength to be right. able to say you know we need to take all these various you know independent parts and create some uniformity here, and then and then try to move forward to a better you know future behind right. this whole concept of broadband adoption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Huh. I agree. Well, this well, has I been, yeah, this this has been a very great, you know, a good conversation to have. Uh, very insightful. You know, I often feel that broadband adoption doesn't get enough attention uh, from people because you know everybody are you know a lot of folks are really fixated on the infrastructure side of things. Mm-hmm. But you can't, as I said in the beginning of the show, you can't have one without the other as far as generating the benefits that you say you want to generate with broadband. You know, you've got mm-hmm. to have these adoption programs. Right. And, uh, you know, so I wish, you know, you and the organization much continued success. Uh, I will keep in touch and, you know, we'll talk again someday. Not, you know, guaranteed at some point we will be talking again. Yeah. And, uh, again, you know, just thank you and keep up the great work. Uh, no a lot of people I know appreciate it. 
Thank you. And, uh, thank you to our audience for attending today. Uh, my civic uh, PSA for the day, please go out and vote tomorrow. You know, there's a lot at stake. So let's get out there and, and, and put our two cents in where it counts. And uh, we will be back on uh, on the air on Wednesday. Uh, and we also have a, uh, a shot. We'll tackle, actually, adoption again on Thursday's show. So, again, thank you, everyone, for being here. I uh, look forward to uh, having you all in the audience again. Have a great day.